You are about to listen to the full interview with Joe Hauser. Sections of it were originally included in our Sierra Sounds episode. Joe is an environmental biologist and owner of the Montana Vortex Experience. He has worked with the Bigfoot Field Research Organization and has studied the camp where Ron Moorhead made his original recordings. We hope you enjoy. Well, my name is Joe Hauser, and uh, I grew up in Southern California and then moved to the Sierras in 1982. Lived in Forstill, California for about 25 years. Um, my educational background is in biology and physics. And currently I live in Montana, just a few miles from Glacier National Park. And I own the Montana Vortex. What drove you to uh, Montana? I purchased the Vortex back in 2004, yeah. I had sold everything I had in California and actually traveled around for about eight, nine months in a motorhome investigating UFO and Sasquatch sightings and ended up in Montana. I know that when you were in the Sierras back in the 80s, you actually had a firsthand encounter with Sasquatch when you were uh, mining for gold, as I understand it. Could you tell me about that experience? Yeah, my gold mining partner and I were at a at a remote gold mining camp in the Sierras, and uh, we were up there mining for the summer. And after we finished mining, we were sitting around the campfire after dinner and just talking. It was about ten o'clock at night. It was just uh, in summertime in the Sierras; didn't get dark till around ten. And all of a sudden, up the canyon from us, we heard two very loud screams, almost like a howler monkey on steroids, and that was followed by a very large whoop. And I kind of came off my chair and I looked at my partner. I go, I go, Herman, what the hell was that? He just looked at me very matter-of-factly and said, oh, that's Sasquatch Bigfoot. You haven't heard one yet? <laughs> I said, no, I haven't. And then... Uh, we threw some more logs on the fire and proceeded to have a conversation about his experiences uh, with hmm. them in the Sierras, uh, in and around the area that we had been gold mining in. Now that's in, uh, it was in the Tahoe National Forest, um, between, uh, well, between Auburn and uh, Squaw Valley up in above Forest Hill there. And so did you have an interest in Sasquatch before that, or was that your first, kind of your first introduction well, no, my first introduction when I was a little kid, uh, seeing the Patterson-Gimlin film on television, and both my grandfather, my dad, and my uncle had had some Bigfoot experiences in Colorado near Crestone Reservoir back in the uh, late 30s, early 40s. They found tracks, and they had actually heard uh, heard some whooping uh, themselves. And uh, that story was kind of passed around after, uh, after seeing the Patterson-Gimlin film. But that was my first experience actually out in the woods. And that kind of started me on uh, on investigating it, but just loosely, because I, I lived and worked in the woods, uh, just things started to happen after that point. So how did you first get connected to the Sierra Sounds? What was your first introduction? Well, I, I had a, my son and I had had another Bigfoot experience in Desolation Wilderness a few years later, oh, quite a few years later, I think it was in 2000. And I had actually filed a report with the BFRO, and I was contacted by Al Berry, who was a curator with the BFRO, and also the person that had recorded the Sierra Sounds. Mm -hmm. And he was investigating the report, and Al and I kind of hit it off. Turned out we only lived uh, just about 40 miles apart. And uh, 
he came up for lunch one weekend and brought a lot of tracks up and the Sierra sounds and we listened to him and talked about experiences and stuff like that. And by then I had, over a period of time, I had a lot, had had a lot more experiences with Sasquatch in the Sierras, but I, I wasn't really actively researching him or anything like that. I was just kind of keeping track of everything that happened. Could you maybe talk before we get more into the Sierra sounds? I'm interested in hearing more about your, some more of your encounters that you've had in the Sierras. Like what sort of things have you encountered? Well, we heard more over a period of, uh, <clears throat> of basically about 20 years. We heard more whoops, more screams. We found footprints. Uh, we found evidence of deer kills that had been very cleverly hidden. Mm-hmm. Several times we had uh, really rank skunk garbage carrying light smells that drifted through camp or in the areas that I was working in. Uh, so all kinds of things like that. And then many times um, just the feeling that you were being watched, like right. something was watching you. The hair would stand up on your, on the back of your neck. And then, like you said about footprints a little bit ago, the book, uh, there's a couple of times we found one single footprint and that was it. There was no other, uh, the first time we found one was in a spring, in the, in the mud in a spring. And it wasn't castable at the time. I, I wasn't into casting stuff and didn't even have a camera then. I wasn't really out doing research, but uh, yeah, a single footprint out in the middle of of nowhere. Did the 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 sounds that you heard, the whoops and the the screams, would do you think they sound similar to what you hear on the Sierra tapes? Not not totally, but yeah, there there's some of the I, I've listened. There's way more uh, way more sounds on the Sierra tapes than what has been made publicly. But yes, yeah, they do sound very similar. So can maybe just just kind of describe what the Sierra sounds are. Um, and how how did Ron and Al re- end up recording these? Well, the, the Sarah sounds at, at the time they came out was the first, what I would say, definitive sounds of what is become known to be Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And nobody else had recorded anything at that time. Uh, they were recorded at a remote, very remote uh, deer hunting camp in the Sierras. Um, between uh, Yosemite and Tahoe. And originally the hunters that were up there heard the sounds. It was a fall hunting camp. They heard the sounds and were kind of shocked by it. Didn't know what they were. They went back home, came back with recording equipment. And over a period of time, they were able to record some of the sounds. Uh, Later on, they contacted, they were looking for somebody who was an expert on Bigfoot, and they were actually referred to Al Berry, and Al was a, uh, <clears throat> a reporter up in the newspaper up in Reading. And after he listened to him, he thought there might be something to him, and uh, he convinced them to take him up there. And he uh, basically, he went up there trying to debunk the sounds. Uh, he, uh, he was convinced that maybe these guys were... were pulling the wool over his eyes or something like that. But once he got up there and set up his equipment, he actually recorded uh, several hours of sounds himself. These sounds, I mean, being a, a, a biologist, is there any known animal that you know of that could potentially reproduce these sounds that we hear on the tape? No, there's, uh, I've been in the woods a big portion of my life and there's no other animal that, uh, 
that makes those sounds and uh, <clears throat> and really there's no animal that has the capability of making those sounds so uh, and also uh, and just like many of the things that i experienced too in terms of what i was talking about earlier all of the things that i've experienced over a period of time associated with sasquatch or bigfoot are out of the norm of normal wildlife biology what you would expect from animals that currently live in our woods. What was your relationship with the fauna communications? Because I know you you were doing some work with them, I think, in relation to um, coming to the camp and, and looking at the surrounding area. Well, I, shortly after I met Al, I met Ron, and <clears throat> Al knew my background uh, as a biologist and some of the investigative work I'd done, and he was trying to find another research company to analyze the sounds other than the research or the analyzation that they already had done. So he contacted Fauna Communications and before they would actually do any research on the sounds, they wanted someone to go to the camp and verify, uh, look to see if it could have been faked, see if the flora and fauna of the area could support a large uh, hominid creature like Bigfoot. So he suggested me uh, and the scientists at Fauna Communications eventually contacted me. We had a conversation and they kind of told me what they wanted me to do up there. So what was your, when you did go, what was your findings when you visited the, the, the camp? Well, the, the camp is very hard to get to, first of all. Um, you start at about 6,000 foot and go up to about uh, about a 40-degree trail, switchbacking up to the top of a mountain up to about 8,500 foot. And it's uh, the only way to get in there is either backpacking or by horseback. And Ron Moorhead and I actually backpacked in. And then once you get to the top of that mountain, it levels out. And you go about another four miles, five miles off trail to where the deer camp was located. So it's very remote, very hard to get to. When I got there, it was uh, it was basically in an old growth forest, very large trees, um, evidence of uh, former fires, uh, fire scars in the area, and stuff like that. And it was very open. Um, old growth forests are very open. The trees are far apart, and there's not a lot of underbrush or stuff like that underneath it. It's a very beautiful area. The camp was set up in a clearing in these old growth trees. And they had uh, what they called their structure, and it was uh, a log structure that they had built to store uh, different things in and also uh, to sleep in. There was a spring very about 40 foot from the the camp kitchen. They had kind of a whole camp set up there because they went back every year for years, I think, going all the way back to the 60s. And uh, so it was a very beautiful place. When I first got there, the first thing I started doing was uh, looking for any way they could have faked the sounds. Was there any speaker wires on trees, uh, any place they could have attached speakers? You know, obviously this was years ago and you would have to carry a lot of speaker cable up there and you'd have to put them somewhere. And I, I checked all the trees all the way around for quite a few feet over probably a good hundred plus feet around the camp 
And there, there was no evidence of anything like that. The trees were all just really nice old growth trees. I also uh, took a Pulaski and took an area about 25, 30 feet around the camp. And we dug, I, you know, supervised by Ron, uh, I dug a trench down through the uh, pine duff and finally hit decomposed granite about 10 inches down. And I figured any speaker wire that was still left in the ground that had that had come from the shelter where the sounds were recorded at would have had uh, would have been within that area. And I couldn't find anything uh, anything there at all. So after spending three days up there, my conclusion was based on the remoteness of the area and no evidence of of, of faking it. I, I didn't feel that the sounds were faked. I, I felt they were actually real. And also based on what I had heard in the Sierras, I felt that they were probably on the right track. So you you feel that the Sierras, the environment of the Sierras, could be conducive to hiding um, a large hominid creature? Oh yes, there's no doubt about it. Uh, they, uh, <clears throat> they're masters that uh, obviously living out in the woods or wherever they're at. I believe they adapt to their environment and they do what's necessary to remain hidden. But certainly there's enough, uh, I, I believe they're omnivores, just like a bear or like we are. But there's, I would say there's plenty of, uh, plenty of available resources up there for them to survive and live comfortably. Do you have any theories on, on why it's so difficult for us to capture one or to find a body or anything of that nature? Because they have abilities that go far beyond our abilities. These are very smart, intelligent beings, and they tend to know uh, what your intentions are. They know when you're in the woods, they know what you're doing. And they may even know what's happening before you come in the woods. So you're not gonna sneak up on one. And most encounters are chance encounters where you're coming around a trail and there's one that uh, is coming around the other way or off in the distance or something like that. So uh, that's that's my take on it. I, I don't, they don't lend themselves well to basic uh, animal behaviors and what we would do to set camera traps for them or anything like that. They, they know when you put out a camera and they're, they're going to stay away from them. When you listen to the tape, it really sounds like there is some form of language. And we spoke with Scott Nelson, who believes that for sure there is representation of language on this tape. Uh, what are your feelings on that? And do you, do you believe that there could potentially be a language amongst these creatures? Well, I think it is a language. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Scott, too, and listened to his presentations on it. And I, I believe there, there, there definitely is a language and that they talk to each other just like we talk to each other. Uh, there's another fellow that's done some work uh, on the tapes also, and he's, he's finding Sumerian words or Sumerian phrases hmm. in, the, in the sounds, which I thought was very interesting. And other people who are recording similar things now are picking out uh, some Native American words, some English words, and different things like that. So I think they do have the language, and they, they probably pick up on some of the stuff that we say and do too. 
When you were at the camp, did you have any strange encounters of yourself? No, actually, when we were at the camp, we did nothing happened. We didn't uh, we didn't hear anything. We didn't find any footprints. Uh, there was no no sounds except the the sounds of the woods and the creek and stuff like that. In Ron's book, um, Voices of the Wilderness, he notes that you you came across uh, a pile of river rocks that seemed to have been carried and left near the camp. Um, could you touch on the significance of this? Well, I, over the years, I've heard what's called rock clocking, and it appears that uh, the beings take a couple very large river-type rocks, and they clock them together. And they may use this as a form of communication, uh, of letting each other know where they're at. But so over that period of time, I've, I've learned to look for things that are out of place. And if I'm or 500 yards away from a creek and there's no river rocks around and we find a couple river rocks behind a tree or laying on the ground and that tells me that uh, they were put there by something. And that's what we found. Ron was explaining to me that out in this meadow area across uh, from camp, there was a big uh, old growth tree over there uh, in the middle of the meadow and some rock outcroppings. And he said, well, that's where all the rock clucking comes from that we hear. So we took a walk over there, and sure enough, we got over there, and there was some uh, very large, round river rocks uh, that were there and totally out of place. I mean, the closest yeah. place you'd find rocks like that would be several miles away. So something had to put them there. It could have been Native Americans that left them there. But I suspected since they were hearing the rock clocking over there, it was, it was, that's probably the rocks they were using. Is there any precedent that you know of in nature of um, either primates or any other type of animal communicating in this way with each other? Well, some of the primates uh, beat their chest. Uh, They do clack rocks together. Um, They do take sticks and beat on trees and stuff like that. So there is is evidence indicating that this could be a primate behavior. I know that Ron believes that these creatures may have a spiritual nature about them, even beyond their, their flesh and blood. Uh, existence do you do you agree with that and if so wh- why do you feel that way well i i uh, i do agree with what ron says about the spiritual nature and i've, I've been saying that for many years too they uh like i said their abilities go far beyond our abilities uh, I, I believe they have the ability to uh to cloak they may all in other words turn invisible Many people have experienced that where they've seen them and then just like that, they've turned into some sort of energy field and disappeared. Uh, They may be interdimensional. We think about interdimensional as something that's far off into the future, but uh, they they could be occupying perhaps a different dimension and then sometimes just stepping foot in this dimension for a very short period of time or even leaving one footprint and then cloaking back into it. The Native Americans that I've interviewed, especially up here, the Blackfeet tribe, they uh, they also believe that they're spiritual beings and exist in two worlds. They they say they have one foot in this world and one foot in the spirit world, and they believe them to be healers and protectors. In my experience here in Montana, I, I believe that also. I, I don't think they're here to harm us, and uh, I believe they are. They can be healers and protectors and also protectors of the environment. I think that's part of what they do too. They're here to protect the environment. Could you kind of describe Al as a, as I know he's not with us anymore, so just interested in learning a little bit more about him as a person, as a journalist. 
Well, Al was uh, he, he was a geologist. His background was in geology, and uh, he had got into journalism. I don't know exactly how, but he was an investigative reporter and kind of a skeptical on many different things. So, like I said, he originally came into this as a skeptic and was going to try to prove that these guys were faking it. But then based on his experiences and stuff like that, he, he his mind was totally changed. He realized that there was something out there that's kind of beyond our conception at the time. And uh, I was a straight shooter. He didn't, he didn't pull any punches, but he was very rational. He didn't jump to conclusions or anything like that. And uh, he did a lot of research uh, in order to support his findings, including like getting the sounds analyzed by Dr. Curlin up in Canada and then uh, other uh, analyzations that happen here in the United States. What sort of independent analysis are you familiar with that happened on the tapes? Well, I know Dr. Curlin uh, analyzed them. Um, I never got to see the report from Fauna Communications, but I know they did some work on it. And uh, I think there was another company that also uh, did some, uh, some analytical work on it. But uh, I, I was never privileged to any of those reports or the outcome of them. I think Dr. Curlin, well, not only his beginning, but now through the test of time, uh, going all the way through Scott Nelson, now a cryptolinguist that's analyzed them, I, I think they have withstood the test of time. And this is probably the most authentic recording of Sasquatch uh, that we have today. And I'm not saying there's not other people that aren't recording things, because I've heard a lot of other recordings too, but the, most of those haven't been analyzed or anything, and these have. Have you heard any other recordings that you think come close to capturing the level of detail that we hear in these, these tapes? There's some people out there that have some really good recordings. There's some people that... Uh, I've heard some of the samurai chatter a little bit here and there that people have picked up in other places. I haven't personally heard it here, but one of my employees uh, heard something very similar to samurai chatter here on the Vortex grounds. And uh, he wasn't into Bigfoot, didn't know anything about it. And he asked somebody else, he goes, hey, do you hear that sound? It sounds kind of like... Chinese people talking really fast or something like that. And the other guy that was with him said, well, I didn't hear anything. And then the guy kept kept on talking about it. And eventually uh, the other worker told him, well, why don't you go talk to Joe? He's got some sounds you might want to listen to. So he did. He did. He, he came and talked to me and I, I played the samurai chatter for him and uh, one of Ron's tapes. And uh, he was just amazed. He said, yeah, that that's not exactly what I heard, but it's the same sort of cadence and and thing. So um, I thought that was very interesting, too, because this guy, uh, he had, was not into Bigfoot, not into any of that kind of stuff, yet uh, he had had this experience, and it really, it really shocked him, the possibilities. You mentioned that you got connected to Al through the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. Um, I know you, you've done some work curating for them as well. Could you kind of talk about that organization and what they do? Well, they're, uh, the Bigfoot, BFRO, Bigfoot Research Organization, was uh, it was started by Matt Moneymaker back in 1995, I believe it was. And it was to uh, take reports of Bigfoot sightings um, or people hearing them or finding footprints, stuff like that. 
and then uh, sending people out to investigate those reports or talk to the people that were turning them in, and then um, put them on a website so that people could access them. Over a period of time, the BFRO has grown. Um, as more things have been learned about these creatures, they uh, or these beings, they've got a lot of educational information and stuff like that on there too. But they have a very large database of, of reports uh, that have been taken in over the years. And did you did you do help do some work for them at some point? Well, I was a curator for them. Um, I, I basically Al Barry got me into the organization. Uh, I think Ron was part of that too. And um, I, I didn't do a lot of the initial investigative work, but once the reports were listed, especially in my area in the Sierras, I went back and did follow-up work. Um, generally, tried to meet with the people out in the field and uh, get their explanation of what they heard and, and what transpired. And so it was very interesting. A lot of a lot of interesting things that go along with the line of things that I was already experiencing and that people are still experiencing today. How common was it to get reports from that region in the Sierras? There's a lot of of Bigfoot activity up there, and there's a lot of people that have experiences. Like me, I was having experiences from 1983 till 2000, and I never reported anything to the BFRO until around 2000. So there's a a lot of people that are having experiences out there but never reported them. And that's the same here in Montana. I, I, I speak to several hundred people a year that have Bigfoot experiences and I've never thought about reporting them or didn't even know where they could report them. But uh, there's, there's quite a few, there's a lot of, let's put it this way, there's a lot of activities in the Sierras up around the Tahoe area, Squaw Valley, and actually going all the way down south. Why do you think that a lot of these reports go unreported? Well, people, they're shocked. Uh, people that I interview, it, it's a life-changing experience. They hear things uh, just like me the first time I heard them at the gold camp. I mean, it's like, what the hell is that? Um, <clears throat> and then you start telling people about it, and a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of raise their eyebrows and look at you like, you know, you're kind of crazy. But um, with the television programs that are on now, especially Finding Bigfoot, I don't know, eight, ten years ago when it came out, it kind of opened up, um, opened up the box and allowed people to feel more comfortable turning in reports uh, and and talking about what they've seen and observed. What do you think is some of the most compelling evidence for Sasquatch's existence? I think the number one thing is visual sightings. You know, there's uh, visual sightings, uh, and when you interview somebody that's, I interviewed a lot of people over the over the years and I pretty much learned to pick out the people who I felt really had an experience versus somebody that was just trying to uh, pull the wool over somebody's eyes or gain some notoriety or stuff like that and people that have seen them or found footprints or even heard them especially people that have seen them it's a life-changing experience they're humbled by it and they really don't know uh who to turn to or who to talk about it. And a lot of them just uh, clam up and they don't say anything for years until they have an opportunity to do it. And I think that's the number one form of evidence is actual visual sightings. 
and that's hard to uh, you can't go back and recreate it necessarily I mean you don't have a footprint to show or you can't record a sound but I think personal sightings are, are the number one source of evidence I know that um, during the time that Ron and Al were at the camp I think they did find footprints and were able to cast some of them have you ever had a chance to see those footprints yeah I have I got one sitting right here on my credenza and, uh, they came from the Sierra camp and it's, I don't know, 20 some inches long and very wide. And I, and I did see other ones that Al had from, um, from casting them up there at the Sierra camp. And do these footprints look similar to the ones you've, you found and experienced in your own, in your own time? Well, they're, they're, they're footprints, obviously a bare foot and they're all different. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, I've got probably 25 casts here in the, in the gift shop at the Vortex and they're all different they're none of them are exactly the same just like if you got 20 people walking down the beach and you take a look at all their footprints there there's different characteristics to all of them and uh so yeah i think i I believe the footprints are real and most people that are getting them i don't think there's too many people that are faking them and uh, somebody who's been doing this for quite a while, you can kind of pretty much figure out a fake footprint. Can you describe to me Ron, just kind of as a character and, and the experience of meeting him for the first time? Well, Ron's a great guy. He's uh, he's fun to be around. He's got a great knowledge of the woods and what he does. And he's very dedicated um, in, uh, in his Sasquatch research over the years that I've known him. And he's just a great guy. He's uh, very honest. I've known Ron now since 2002, 2003. Uh, We've spent a lot of time together. Um, And uh, Ron's just a really good guy. There's nothing sneaky or under the table about Ron. What you see is what you get. And everything that he does is very sincere. And he totally believes the evidence that they've collected. And I do too. Many other people do too. Do you have any plans, or do you know if Ron has any plans to ever go back to the camp? You know, I don't know. We talked about it recently. I was supposed to go up there a couple of years ago with Ron and Scott, and Dave Pilates went up there and filmed Missing 411, The Hunted. And I recently, Dave just Dave just lives down the road from me, and uh, we talk all the time. And we, we've talked about going back up there again. And I've talked to Ron about it, but I'm not sure uh, that it will happen. The last time they were up there, they were they had to leave because of a forest fire in the area. However, those old growth, uh, I've looked at it on Google or something, those old growth trees and everything are still there. And they're very fire resistant. So even though a lot of the grass and some of the smaller underbrush by them burned. I, I think there's still viable habitat there. And that's been several years ago. So I think things are maybe returning to normal. From your experience looking through so many different Bigfoot reports at the BFRO, have you noticed any patterns or consistencies in sightings that you think can help explain these creatures' behavior? In what way? In a way of us understanding kind of how how they live, maybe a way to expect like when and where you might see one, what sort of conditions they may live in. Well, obviously, they live in just about every environment that we have. They've been seen in the desert. They've been seen near the ocean, um, lower foothills areas, and even up in the in the woods. So they're very adaptable to any environment that they're in. What I've found over the years is I, I've never really gone out looking for Sasquatch or Bigfoot. 
And I tell people, if you go looking for them, there's a good chance you're never going to find them. But most of the sightings that you, or most people that are having experiences and had experiences over the years are just kind of like at the Sierra Camp. It's hunters out hunting, people camping, people down by the river, playing with their kids, having a good time. Their purpose is not out there to look for Sasquatch. And so I tell people, go out in the woods or research areas through the BFRO, find an area where there's a lot of activity and go out in the woods and set up a camp and stay there and keep going back. And as you go back, if they're there, they get used to you. And my experience is eventually they will make some sort of contact with you. I know that there's more recordings than are available to find for people online. Um, Have you heard the full recordings? Uh, From the Sierra Camp? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I have uh, have, uh, Al Berry gave me a CD of the the recordings years ago. So I've, I've heard everything that Al has, and there's quite a bit more stuff. Is there any way, is it digitized? Is there any way I might be able to hear that? Actually, uh, um, Ron and I pretty much have an agreement that he has all that information too. And, uh, you know, that's that's Ron's uh, area. And uh, so I'll leave uh, disclosing it to him. But there is more. Yeah, there's more that exists, definitely. Do you know what his hesitancy is in, in sharing the rest of it? No, I don't. Uh, that's a personal decision that, that Ron has made. I, I believe Scott Nelson has probably heard uh, heard other sounds too, and other recordings. And I know people are sending him recordings for analysis uh, quite often. But uh, that that's a personal decision by Ron. And like I said, I've known Ron for a long time. I respect him, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. That's fair. Um, is I mean, could are you? Do you think you could touch on? What is on the rest of the tape? Is it similar to what we hear in the samples we hear online? Is there, is there more? Is there different types of vocalizations? I think they're pretty much similar to uh, to to the to the things that you're hearing online. Uh, I think they've taken taken a really good cross section of, of everything and uh, and put them on there. Um, and so I, I think that's pretty much what uh, what you'd hear if you listen to the rest of them. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about your role now as the owner of the Montana Vortex and what and what that uh, location is for viewers who aren't familiar with it? Well, I purchased the Montana Vortex about 16, 17 years ago uh, to research uh, geomagnetic or electromagnetic energy fields. And the Vortex is a geomagnetic anomaly. It's one of several known uh, geomagnetic anomalies in the United States and the world. And very little uh, mainstream scientists or scientific research has been done at these places. Generally, they're considered roadside attractions. But we purchased it to look into the science side of it, um, to bring in equipment to measure the energy field, uh, to document uh, where the vortexes are at, stuff like that. And over a period of time, we've discovered a lot of really cool things and have had some really awesome paranormal experiences here. It's probably one of the most paranormal places in North America. Uh, Many people now compare it to Skinwalker Ranch. So almost a lot of the stuff that happens between Skinwalker Ranch and the Montana Vortex, there's definitely a parallel there. The difference, though, is Skinwalker Ranch seems to be a viable to see. Uh, A lot of negative things happen there. People have bad experiences. And 
I've come to the conclusion over the years there's both positive and negative energy fields, and this happens to be a positive one. So most people come here, they experience good things, and uh, it's much different than that. It's funny you bring up Skinwalker Ranch. That's actually um, another episode we're doing for this season. Uh, we're we're doing a, a covering that as well, that story. Um, I'm curious to hear, I mean, off subject to the Sierra sounds kind of like what you're what you know about Skinwalker Ranch and why you think that it could be a potentially a, a, a similar sort of location to the Montana Vortex a little bit more detail on that well I, I've read the book the hunt for Skinwalker or the hunt at Skinwalker Ranch I've, I've watched the series episodes probably like a lot of people have and um, <clears throat> some of the things they're experiencing there um, the phenomenon, I mean, I think some of the researchers saw a light opened up on the ground, a circle, and a hominid creature crawled out of it and walked off in the distance. There's UFO sightings. So all kinds of crazy stuff like that going on there. They're seeing strange lights, orbs. Um, they're feeling the effects of the field. Some people are getting sick, nauseous, disoriented, stuff like that. So those are all the different things that also happen here. Uh, well, there was a fellow that works on Skinwalker Ranch, or work, he's not in the program yet, but he was here right after they finished filming that, and actually I think one of, one of the producers told him he was going to go to Montana and visit some friends and family, and one of the producers told him he should check out the Montana Vortex, and he came here, and he didn't tell me about it at first, it was later on that he told me that he had worked on the ranch, and uh, he said he'd never felt anything. Um, it actually made him sick here, and he said he never felt energy so strong on Skinwalker Ranch as he felt here. And so it was kind of an interesting thing. Have you ever had a chance to visit Skinwalker? I haven't, but I'm uh, I'm hoping for the possibility, and, um, and I hope that someday, at some point in time, uh, that I'll be able to, to go down there and take a look around. Yeah, I think I've hit all the questions I have for you. Do you. Is there anything that I haven't touched on in relation to the Sierra Sounds and your involvement that you think we should know would be helpful for this episode? For people who are who are questioning the Sierra Sounds, based on my research, uh, being at the Sierra Camp and knowing uh, Al Berry and Ron Moorhead uh, for years, I know that uh, this is a, an, an honest representation of what they recorded up there and the experiences they were having. And based on the remoteness of the place and the time and technology at that time, I don't think there's any way that they could have been faked. And I think time uh, that other people now are recording the same things, I I think it pretty much uh, verifies what they did up there. Let us know if you think Sasquatch could be real on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.